Welcome to South Asia Sphere, a monthly roundup of news events in South Asia that have made headlines and haven't made headlines. If you've been following South Asia Sphere for some time, you might have seen it in the form of a newsletter before. But starting this month, we're going to be doing a podcast. And this is the first episode of the South Asia Sphere podcast. I'm Shubhanga, and I'm joined by Amita and Raisa. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. So in this episode of South Asia Sphere, we're going to be talking about a few big stories that affected South Asia, the elections in Sri Lanka, the freedom of speech debate in India, the war on drugs in Bangladesh, among a few other things. And I think we can start now. Yeah, uh, Shabanga, so thanks for the introduction. Um, it's been a really eventful month for South Asia as uh, we uh, held in the region our first post-COVID-19 election in Sri Lanka on August 5th to elect 225 members to Sri Lanka's parliament. The Rajapaksa family and their party, the Sri Lanka Porujana Perumana or, Sri Lanka, uh, or SLPP, won more seats than when Mahinda Rajapaksa went to the polls in 2010, soon after Sri Lanka's civil war ended, with a you know a complete military victory for the government. This was when Mahinda was assumed to be at the height of his popularity, and now that's been surpassed. So with uh, close allies, the SLPP secured 150 seats in parliament, which is a two-thirds supermajority, and, and you know, that grants the SLPP the power to amend the constitution. Sri Lanka's government is likely to interpret this as a mandate to consolidate Sinhala Buddhism in the otherwise ethnically diverse country. That is you know, clearly symbolized by Mahindra Rajapaksa taking oaths at a Buddhist temple like his brother did on becoming president in November last year. It's also, um, you know, the, the parliamentary elections has also resulted in the empowerment of singular Buddhist ultranationalists, um, including with a parliamentary seat this election for a party associated with anti-Muslim hate speech. Given, you know, the Rajapaksa style of governance, the next few years are likely to see some significant human rights violations, especially for minority communities. As Gotabaya Rajapaksa noted in his throne speech, national security will be a top priority for the government. And that often translates to no dissent tolerated. Already in the last six months, we've seen a rapid increase in militarization, the arrest without charge of a prominent human rights lawyer, the intimidation of journalists and activists representing the relatives of the forcibly disappeared. This election also notably saw a fragmentation of Tamil politics. We had the uh, predominant Tamil party, the Tamil National Alliance, losing about 40% of its parliamentary presence. And um, it's also seen a kind of shift away from two of Sri Lanka's grand old parties. And you know, I really hate using that term. It's, it's something like an old British colonial administrator would use, probably. Um, also kind of associated with the U.S. Republican Party and, you know, suggests that there's something like kind of ungrand about new, or, you know, what modernity and like evolved values. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, I'm not sure that it's exactly a move away from the establishment if, you know, you interpret grand old party to mean establishment, because if you look at the heads of the new parties, you know, the SLPP is headed by Kota Abe Rajapaksa, who is well known as the former defense secretary, and the SJB, which forms the main opposition party with Sajid Premadasa, who's also not a newcomer. You know, then this isn't really a move away from the establishment. And even the policies that they put forward or discussed aren't really, you know, anything new. Right. So I, I think even though there's this kind of rhetoric of a shift away from some of these old establishment politics, a lot has actually remained the same. I think this election, you know, to sum up, will actually kind of weaken constitutional safeguards for Sri Lankan democracy, including the separation of powers and the independent oversight bodies. 
that were introduced in 2015, because, you know, as Gautabaya Rajapaksa mentioned in his own speech, the SLPP plans to eliminate the 19th Amendment. And, you know, it, it would possibly also result in greater centralization of power via the proposed elimination of the 13th Amendment, which guarantees devolution to the provinces. And, you know, we may even see a new constitution in Sri Lanka, which will consolidate singular Buddhist ethnocracy in the country and perhaps even the Rajapaksa dynastic project. Right, which kind of brings us to the next big elections in South Asia. That's the Myanmar elections on November 8th. Could you give us updates on that, Amita? Yeah, I mean, with uh, two months to go, the National League for Democracy, the NLD, is predicted to hold on to its electoral successes. And, you know, while Aung San Suu Kyi remains extremely popular with her base and the country has made several reforms in the last few years, some analysts think there hasn't been enough change in Myanmar. And Suchi's relationships uh, with ethnic groups have actually deteriorated over the years. You know, analysts have suggested that Myanmar's election won't be free and fair because, you know, we have thousands of displaced civilians, 200,000 from Rakhine alone, across the nation that might not be able to vote in areas of social unrest. The election commission has also barred three more Rohingya candidates from running for office because apparently their parents were not citizens when they were born. But on the outcomes and conduct of the Myanmar elections, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, relatedly on the subject of elections, we've also seen calls for internal elections to elect a new leader for India's Congress after senior leaders over 20 expressed their grievances with the interim nature of the party's leadership in a letter to Sonia Gandhi. She's, um, you know, like the longest serving Congress president. And, and the Congress is actually another grand old party with a 130 year old history. Right. So coming to India, I think we can enter the second big topic of this podcast, which is free speech debates that's going on in India. The debate began with the withdrawal by Bloomsbury, a publisher of a book on daily riots. So, you know, everyone saw those um, kind of social media criticism of their decision to publish a book that seems to be both misinformed and kind of riddled with misleading and dubiously sourced information about the February daily riots and actually based on a report produced by pro-BJP and a pro-Citizenship Amendment Act group. So anyway, that was, you know, the book seemed like a strange thing for them to publish. And then there was a a book launching that was happening, which invited Kapil Mishra, who's a a BJP politician, who's seen as someone that incited the entire violence. So, so, you know, it seemed like a strange thing for them to do. Now, they did say that the book launch was not uh, part of their plan and that their logo had been used, but still they were publishing the book. So... After a sustained kind of social media criticism of that, this has led to Bloomsbury withdrawing the publishing of the book, um, you know, much to the ire of right-wing commentators who are now seeing this as a curtailment of free speech. Interestingly, the book has been picked up by a pro-Hindutva publisher, but all of a sudden there's this big debate and I don't know how valid the debate is, you know, on this being an attack on free speech and that the you know, liberal left is being hypocritical. Yeah, I find it quite interesting that this story of this book is being discussed in the context of freedom of expression, because in my view, you know, this is kind of just a reaction to public outcry, which I feel should kind of be contrasted with actual instances where the state is intervening to restrict free speech. And we have a high profile kind of instance of that uh, before the Supreme Court right now with the case of Prashant Pushan. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, which again explains kind of why this whole thing is a false analogy that uh, supposedly the liberal left have this outcry when their people are stopped from speaking, but it ignores the fact that, you know, Prashant Bhushan being found guilty of contempt of court for a few tweets was was the state, you know, the judiciary acting on that. 
I mean, even with non-state actors, you saw the attack on uh, caravan reporters, right? By mobs in Delhi. So, yeah. I mean, those are genuine attacks on, on free expression because it either uses the state instrument or there's uh, physical violence, which seems very much different from the case of uh, that book being withdrawn because that's a kind of social sanctioning. And I feel in some way the Indian right is deploying the same categories and terms of the cancel culture, which has kind of become big in the U.S., particularly since the rise of Trump. And, you know, all of a sudden, social boycotts of all kinds become the same as the state or mobs attacking on someone. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting how, you know, these false analogies that are being created. Another story that's kind of been really made headlines was this story in the Wall Street Journal, which actually found that there were these instances of hate speech, which were identified by Facebook and which were being spread by the BJP, which were not removed. And uh, this story actually kind of lifted the veil that of secrecy that surrounds like some of the inner operations of Facebook. And it kind of identified, you know, Anki Das, who is the policy person, kind of showing that, you know, she had apparently explicitly said that these posts should not be removed because to do so would be to threaten, you know, the market opportunity that they would have in India. So that's been an interesting story. Yeah, and I feel it sometimes even models the actual debate on free speech and hate speech and, you know, how companies like Facebook maintain their own standards. I mean, in this case, it was clearly a failure to stand by their own standards, right? I mean, interestingly, she has a history of also making Islamophobic comments. So, and we know the kind of, what the result of allowing these kind of hate speech on platforms like Facebook have been, looking at what happened in Myanmar and Sri Lanka. So it also makes one question how serious platforms like Facebook are when it comes to basically standing, you know, by their own standards. Yeah, that's right. And to add to that, there's also been some writing that I've seen, which has actually talked about how maybe we shouldn't get too distracted by the personalities, including Ankidas, and focus, like you said, on the issues, on the fact that these platforms need to be standing by the commitments that they make or making some kind of an effort on freedom of speech and just not allowing hate speech to proliferate. But we're going to move on now to drugs. And specifically, a particular case in Bangladesh, which was actually the killing of this retired military officer, Major Singh Rashid Khan. And this case has actually forced security forces to confront their culture of extrajudicial executions. So, like, the details of this case will be kind of chillingly familiar to those who have been following Bangladesh politics and um, these kind of cases. So he was shot dead at a checkpoint in Cox's Bazaar where he was actually shooting a documentary. According to the police, he refused to stop and they had then fired in self-defense. And afterwards, they had recovered, they said, recreational drugs and um, alcohol from Singha. Now, following this and following some outcry, seven police personnel who are among the accused have been placed in remand. And there have been several residents who were witnesses who were also placed in remand. Now, I said that this kind of shooting is familiar to those who have been following incidents in Bangladesh. Uh, that's because it has very chilling similarities to these incidents, which are kind of euphemistically called crossfire killings. Yeah, I, I mean, the word crossfire killing sounds dangerously close to what's called encounter killings and or encounters uh, mostly in India, Pakistan, sometimes Nepal also. It just shows how uh, creative states can get when it comes to, you know, hiding certain kinds of uh, extrajudicial actions. 
Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you can even draw parallels with Sri Lanka. There, there's been, again, a long history of prisoners either being taken to, to the scene of a crime and then um, reports that they've tried to escape. And then in Sri Lanka, what's often said is, again, this term self-defense, either try to escape or attack them. So similarities across the region to these incidents. Um, but when we look at Bangladesh in particular, according to rights body N.O. Silish Kendra, there have been around 2,700 people who have been killed in this so-called crossfire or gunfight since 2004. And that's when the Rapid Action Battalion was formed. Now, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina has given the RAB a mandate to crack down on drugs. Um, and they've called, you know, she's gone so far as to call drug peddlers a menace to society. But now with the killing of Major Singer, there's been this increased scrutiny. And especially because the victim is a former bodyguard of Prime Minister herself. So she's actually told Rashid's mother that a proper probe would be carried out. So this story has cross-border resonance with Sri Lanka, where former President Maitripala Sirisena pushed for the death penalty for drug traffickers. And the current president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, has also appointed a military-led task force. And their primary mandate is actually to liberate society from the drug menace. So since this task force has been formed, and indeed since Gotabaya has been appointed president, there have been these reports of drugs and firearms being seized, along with reports of increased crackdowns. But there have also been these reports of apprehending a number of really unusual accomplices. So most recently, there was a cat who was found smuggling two grams of heroin, two SIM cards, and a memory chip into Alicada prison. And the cat was detained in early August. And interestingly, this cat then made a break for freedom and was then subsequently found again on the prison premises. And this story made headlines, you know, around the world. There was also actually an eagle who was suspected to be used by underworld kingpin Angoda Lokka for his drug trafficking ring. And this eagle was also seized by the police at the end of July, actually. And it was found on a poultry farm in Migoda. And two suspects um, who were involved in this ring were arrested. Um, now, Angoda Loka has actually been in the news recently as well. He goes by two other aliases, which is Pradeep Singh and Madhumagela Santa Chandana Pereira. He was recently found dead in India, seemingly due to a heart attack, um, but he was wanted in connection with several crimes in Sri Lanka, including murder, illegal sand mining, land reclamation, extortion, drug smuggling. Um, so that's been an interesting story that we've been following. And I guess that's a, a nice transition or segue into the issue of transitional justice in the continent. So August 30th was the International Day of Disappearances. But unfortunately, across the region, families of the disappeared are still waiting for answers with several stalled or flawed, um, or in some cases, non-existent transitional justice projects. Um, in Sri Lanka, it's uh, quite obvious in hindsight now that 2015's political shift was not really consolidated by the kind of accountability or change in political culture that's necessary um, for a genuine political transition. So despite pledges by the previous government to implement a meaningful transitional justice project, nothing substantial has actually happened. And um, in Nepal, you have victims of the 10-year-long Maoist insurgency who are gradually losing hope of getting justice, just like in Sri Lanka. Nine years after the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was signed, and you know uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Commission of Investigation on Enforced Disappeared Persons was formed in 2015, um, these victims are still waiting for answers. 
And like in Sri Lanka, the transitional justice project in Nepal is suspected to be a type of undue international intervention, largely because there is a lot of foreign interest and um, human rights groups have that kind of association in Nepal and, and you know, across the region. But you know, if you're interested in regional transitional justice efforts, uh, be sure to catch a, a piece this week on the transitional justice process in the Maldives as well. And now a very short, quick update on COVID-19. We've been seeing uh, cases really pick up, particularly in Nepal and you know, India continues to see uh, more and more infections. Uh, but interestingly, a lot of countries around the region appear to be using the blood plasma therapy to try to treat COVID patients. Um, and so you're seeing this in Pakistan, you know, cities around Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Bangladesh, Nepal. And it's not clear if the governments have kind of made it part of their public health effort, but clearly organizations, different hospitals and clinics have started doing it. So that's an interesting trend. Yeah, and just to kind of end on a bit of a positive note, the Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment in India has constituted the National Council for Transgender Persons, which would, you know, work with states to ensure that transgender welfare boards are set up in all states and that the essential needs of the community like housing, food, healthcare and education are met. So that's the end of episode one of South Asia Square, our new podcast on South Asian affairs. And uh, do subscribe to us and visit our website, himalmag.com for more. Bye. Bye. Bye.